Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You're listening to the Writer Than You podcast. And here we are still live from the Rocket Mortgage Studios when you need cash out of your home and a simple way to get it. Rocket Ken. Welcome back to Writer Than You on this Tuesday morning on CBS Sports Radio on the free Odyssey app. Andrew Bogish once again honored to be in the seat of Bill Ryder, who is off this entire week. I'm with you today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Carrington Harrison back in the chair on Friday like he was yesterday. We've had one MLB trade since we came on the air an hour ago. Orioles sending all-star closer Jorge Lopez to the Twins. Juan Soto very much in play, maybe close to a move from the Nats to the Padres, but still seven hours of possible baseball trades to go. It's hour number two, which means shortly we've got buy or sell. But right now we're back on Deshaun Watson, and many of us are not good at discussing the very serious conversation and issues surrounding sexual assault and how to handle them correctly. And most of us are definitely not good at handling anything that involves judges and rulings and legal terms. So this is the perfect time to welcome in Michael McCann, one of the best in the business that breaks down sports legal issues for us. Writing now at Sportico. Follow him on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. Michael, it is Andrew as always. Thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. You got it, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. So, I mean, let me start with what might be a a dumb question, a very broad question, but reading it in your mind yesterday, how is there an overall grade assessment that comes to mind with the job that Sue Robinson did? I thought she did a very good job in terms of explaining her reasoning. And she found clearly that Watson engaged in conduct detrimental. She was very critical. She said that he acted in a predatory way, egregious. There are all sorts of words that showed she agreed with the NFL. But as she pointed out, the NFL, the NFL's reasoning for its punishment didn't seem backed up by previous cases or by what the CBA says or other league documents. So I thought she did a good job of explaining, in essence, I agree with you, NFL, that what he did was awful, but I don't understand where you're coming up with a request that he be suspended a year plus an indefinite period. There's no rhyme or reason for that based on prior cases or what documents say. So I think she she sort of crafted that line pretty well. Obviously, people are very critical of the ruling because it seems like he's being punished too lightly. But in terms of her job, I thought she did a good job. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if critical is the right word for me, but as I sat down last night and started to read her ruling, it sounds like she's ready to send Deshaun Watson away for a really long time, and then she makes that turn on the precedent issue and also deeming this nonviolent. Did you, do you agree, it sounds like you do, with the, that turn in her thinking where, yeah, he did some bad things, but there's only so much I can do here? Yeah, so, I mean, commonsensically, it doesn't seem that that's right. 
But on the other hand, she's going by how the league has used that phrase. And she's not really trying to reinterpret it in a way that goes outside the scope of how the league has been using that phrase or the union has been using it. So, uh, and I, and I think that that puts her in a tough spot where she's really bound to basically apply the rules, right? I mean, that's what a judge should do, not sort of reinvent the rules or create new rules, but apply, apply the rules that are there and apply how words have been defined. So uh, I think in that regard, she did a, a very good job, but, but it doesn't, you know, the public doesn't necessarily uh, sort of view the world that way. And I think that's always a, a challenge for a judge is when they're applying the rules, they're not trying to make up new rules or trying to apply rules. Sometimes it leads to outcomes that seem wrong or unfair, but it's really the job of the judge, or in this case, the judge serving as an arbitrator to abide by the rules that she's been given. Michael, the distinction that she makes, you know, deeming this nonviolent, obviously I, I think that there is a non-legal way to assess that in terms of what is and what is not violence in these certain situations, but from a from a legal perspective, that is an important delineation for her to have made? Yeah, it does, because it, it, it she wrote it meant that she didn't even have to suspend them six games. She noted it could be less than that. She was under no obligation to suspend them six games. But even if it was violent, it's not clear that she would have gone above six games because she noted that there's the issue of this. He's a first time offender in the sense that he hasn't been punished before. So it's significant, but I'm not sure it even would have led to a different ruling. Can you walk me through also her point about the NFL had to give the PA fair notice about upping punishments for things like this? Because my very novice reaction to that was, you know, this is not, there's no gray area on his, on this type of behavior in general. It's not like something came about where, you know, like, I, I know this is a good comparison or not, but I was thinking more along the lines of baseball and pitchers using a sticky substance. Like, all of a sudden something was legal and now it's not. So now you can't punish him because things are different. Like, Deshaun Watson shouldn't need a heads up that he shouldn't behave like this. But why did this fair notice argument come into play here? So I think the fair notice argument comes into play in terms of the punishment. Okay. That, right, so she, she found him, he, he erred, and he, he, he committed conduct detrimental. But the notice argument is that if you're going to, if you're going to hold, if you're going to punish someone, but before the person commits the wrongful act, they need to know what the punishment is, that it can't suddenly increase fivefold uh, after the fact that that's the retroactive concern that if if you and I are doing something wrong and, and we know that the crime carries a 10-year prison sentence if suddenly the judge says well you guys are really bad people we're going to send you to life that's un- that that's not allowed in the US it's sort of it's a retroactive application of a punishment and it's not normally allowed in arbitration either Michael McCann at McCann Sports Law covers all sports legal issues at Sportico with us here this morning on CBS Sports Radio. Um, As I think most people know by now, the NFL did not bring all of the women and all of these allegations in front of Sue Robbins. And they kind of streamlined things into four specific women and their accusations. Is that the normal procedure in something like this? And do you think it was the right way to go about things from the NFL perspective? Yeah, there's no normal procedure here because we've never seen this before. Okay. We've never seen a player, right. right? So this is this is kind of like literally a make it up as you go. 
Uh, I, I think it made sense in the sense that they went with the cases that they thought were, were the strongest in terms of corroborating evidence, that there were text messages and other materials that distinguish those cases from the others. So it, to me, it makes sense to streamline it because the challenge of doing 24 cases is that, uh, A, it can, it can seem repetitive, and some of them may not be as strong as others. And it allows Watson's lawyers to say, well, aha, if this isn't the strongest case, then why should you believe the others? Do you think the NFL should appeal this decision, Michael? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. I, I think they probably will, but I'm like 60-40 on it. I, I'm not convinced they're going to do it, as I would be in any other player matter. And the reason why I say that is that it's risky for the NFL. It's risky because they have to explain how a pretty, you know, a pretty uh, reasonable in terms of logic ruling by Judge Robinson is wrong. And, you know, this is different from other cases where Goodell is the sort of, uh, you know, what he finds facts, he issues a punishment, he hears appeals. Now, it's, now there's some new person in the story that wrote, I think, a pretty logical and persuasive decision. Whether people agree with it or not, that can be debated, but it's not, it's not easy to rebut. So the NFL, if they want to elevate the punishment, which I assume they do, they can do that, but then Watson's going to sue. And it's going to go to a federal court. And, you know, this is different from Brady. This is different from Ezekiel Elliott. This is different from Adrian Peterson because there was no Judge Robinson in those stories. So I think the league has a tough, tough choice. What would be their best argument to base an appeal on? I think they're going to argue that, that the commissioner has broad discretion in issuing punishments, that there's nothing in the collective bargaining agreement that prevents the commissioner from assigning a punishment of a year plus an indefinite period that uh, Judge Robinson is sort of creating a constraint that isn't in the wording. That's what I would argue if I were them. Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've tackled this topic before, but or maybe it's just in your head. Is there, if you could construct a system for the NFL that would work better than what they used to have, maybe better than this one, like what, in your mind, what's kind of the utopian structure for this type of situation where we can actually, you know, you can defend yourself, the league can prosecute you, so to speak, and then we get to some kind of fair, balanced, third-party, independent decision. What what tweaks might you make to a system like this to maybe take away some of the angst people have been feeling since yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the system is designed pretty pretty well in the sense that it has a neutral person at the start. I think the problem maybe is just the rules that the rules aren't set up for a Deshaun Watson situation. And it put the judge in a tough spot to apply a set of rules where she clearly believes that he engaged in wrongful conduct, but she can't sort of create a new punishment scheme. I think it would benefit the NFL and the Players Association to think about how to, how to prevent something like this in terms of a punishment that most of the public, I, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I don't have a public opinion poll, but my sense is that most people believe that Watson is not being punished as as sternly as he should. Uh, there are other possibilities. You know, the NBA has a system where there's an appeal process if the punishment is more than 12 games, but not before, not lower than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are different ways of doing it. Which I think the, the NHL, NHL does, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
so leagues have other systems that might be better. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily a bad system per se. I think it's the rules that are set up where there's a lot of ambiguity about what a punishment should be. I did see people say that this system might end up favoring the PA based on this decision yesterday. Is that a fair assessment or is it too quick to read anything into the overall kind of process that, that we're now in with the NFL? You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Cause we've never seen a Deshaun Watson situation before. It's just, I'm not sure this is sort of, this is not necessarily a repeat situation where the fact that he got six games is necessarily relevant for other players. I mean, hopefully we never see another player facing these sorts of accusations, these multiple accusations, uh, what more, more than two dozen at one point. I, I, I don't know if this is one of these, it's so ex- extraordinarily bad that we might not see it again. But I think to the extent the league believes that multiple accusations should merit uh, multiple or sort of longer suspensions that the ruling by judge Robinson doesn't, doesn't help the NFL in that regard. So in that respect, it might constrain the NFL, but again, I don't, you know, we, we haven't seen this before. So yeah. it's, it's been, NFL has been around a long time and uh, I'm not sure this is like a repeat scenario for the league. Michael, last thing, just, just to sum up and, Forgive me in advance for putting words in your mouth, but it, it sounds like you might have landed in a similar spot as Sue Robinson if you were in charge of this hearing. Is that is that fair? So, well, you know, going into it, I thought she would. I thought it would be an eight or ten game suspension. To be perfectly honest with you, I okay. didn't think she was going to get a year because I thought there were multiple accusations and that there should be some reflection of that. That it should be longer than what other players have faced. But after reading her opinion and sort of the logic of it, I thought, well, it makes sense what she wrote. So I might not have landed in the same spot because I was thinking about it differently going into it, but uh, clearly she thought through it in a way that uh, to me is logical, even if the outcome doesn't seem right. Michael, thanks for all of this. We needed the help, so we certainly appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. You got it. Thanks, Andrew. That's Michael McCann. Read him at Sportico. Follow him at McCann Sports Law. There are a lot of men and women that cover sports legal issues. From my money, Michael does it as best as, as well as anybody in the business. Now, this is such a, I mean, this has always been such a complicated conversation. I've said this in this chair. I said it yesterday during the DA show, which airs before this one on CBS Sports Radio. And Michael just said it in a different way at the end there. We've, we've never had a situation like this before. We've had Ray Rice. We've had Ezekiel Elliott. We've had, unfortunately, too many other players involved in domestic violence, sexual assault, kind of an all-encompassing crimes against women. But I can't remember one that has had the this wide range of outcomes in terms of what actually happened. But eventually we saw what Ray Rice did. We saw what Kareem Hunt did. We heard what Greg Hardy did. There was audio-visual Joe Mixon. Like, we've, we saw these things. So that took away any gray area. But... This entire, this entire thing is almost gray area because best case scenario, Deshaun Watson is just a weirdo making terrible decisions as a professional, putting himself in danger by finding underqualified, inexperienced, off-site, private massage sessions that anything could have happened in, anything. I mean, he was finding women out of nowhere on the internet 
he had no idea who he was talking to. He could have ended up in a room, and all of a sudden, doors could have locked. Their guys could have come in. I mean, there's he opened himself up to all sorts of possibilities. So best case scenario, he was reckless and short-sighted and weird. Worst case scenario, he's a serial sex offender with this evil master plan to lure women into these settings to get something sexual out of it with no regard for their well-being. And in between, almost every other ending is bad. There's really no good, he did nothing wrong, end game here. It's basically going from the, he's just a little bad, to he's one of the worst people ever. So this has always been difficult. And then yesterday specifically, as I think Michael did so good explaining, you have to, we have to try to separate logic and what actually has to matter legally. And in terms of procedure in court, this is not court like in a criminal case, but there are things applied differently in this setting than in real life. Because it doesn't make any sense from just a a human awake with a brain who can think. It makes no sense to say all of the things that Sue Robinson did about Deshaun Watson. Pseudo-confirming all of the terrible things he did to these women. And then hinging on its non-violence, which... Might make sense legally, but it doesn't make sense like human to human. He didn't punch anybody. He didn't kick anybody. He didn't physically harm someone in that regard. But I mean, there's emotional and mental violence too. And those seem to be very much in play here. And the the only you know somewhat rational thing to do is to defer to people like Michael McCann who know these things better than us, which is why I wanted to have somebody on like him, not just somebody who covers the NFL, but somebody who understands every single word and line and paragraph in a 16-page ruling, because unless you went to law school, we can't. As smart as we think we might be, unfortunately, as experienced as we are in these conversations in sports, we just don't know this well enough. And... I completely understand the confusion, the disappointment, the anger, because six games and the specific rationale outside the specter of a courtroom, a hearing room, whatever, it doesn't seem to add up. And it certainly seems like Deshaun Watson is getting away with a lot, with a slap on the wrist. Six games, from a football perspective, shouldn't be, especially because, and I don't know if this is real or not, but it's another conspiracy theory out there. The NFL makes the schedule. And schedules are hard. You've got to give 32 teams 18 games, and you've got to get them on a Thursday night. And there's short weeks, there's bye weeks, there's primetime games. But the Browns ended up with six games to start their season that are arguably the easiest six games of their season. Now, game seven and eight, they dump into the Ravens and the Bengals for the first time. But their first six games are not difficult. They should be okay. Those first six games, if that's what Deshaun Watson ends up missing, only those six games, they're good enough other ways to not let that completely change their season where they can't be saved when Deshaun comes back. 
And then, of course, too, as we mentioned at the start of the show, all of the ridiculous financial reshuffling they did to not hurt him financially with any kind of suspension that came down. He barely loses game checks because his salary for this year is actually just a million dollars. And then other contract language means they can't, normally they could, but they can't in this situation try to recoup any of the signing bonus because he was punished. They signed off on that as well. It just, it seems like yesterday was all good news for Deshaun Watson. And he just didn't deserve it. He just didn't deserve it. And as I'm talking to you right now, I'm seeing somebody resending out video of Deshaun surrounded by Browns fans begging for his autograph. It makes total sense because of the world we live in, but it also will never make sense because we should be better than this. This is next training camp. It's slightly more palatable, but this is hours after he was lambasted, torn apart, condemned by a judge, suspended six games, and people are out there like nothing happened. It's just terrible. 855-212-4CBS, 855-212-4227. Phone lines open. You can get us on Twitter as well, at Andrew Bogish, at DCLCBS. And speaking of at DCLCBS, it's segment two of hour two. It is time for Tom to shine. Buy or sell is next on Rider Than You. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to the Writer Than You podcast. I was expecting Bill to start talking there. It's Andrew Bogus in for Bill. Almost done on a Tuesday morning, a busy Tuesday morning. MLB trade deadline's coming at 6 Eastern today. We have already had the Twins, still reported, not official, getting all-star closer Jorge Lopez from the Orioles. This is official, a, sl- a, light, a slightly less important trade as the Braves send reliever Will Smith to Houston for righty starter Jake Odorizzi. Uh, we also have another layer to the Juan Soto rumors. Uh, the Nats apparently are on the verge right now. They have begun the process of calling up minor leaguers to replace open roster spots. So whether that's Soto, whether that's Josh Bell, and the latest rumors they're going together possibly to San Diego, things are coming for the Nats now six and a half hours away from that deadline. But first things first, most importantly, buy or sell. What side will Bill take on the biggest issues in the world of sports? It's time for today's edition of Buy or Sell on Writer Than You. All right, Andrew, let's jump right in by talking some NFL here to start. Now, four wide receivers from the 2019 draft class have gotten paid this offseason. That would be A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin, D.K. Metcalf, and most recently, Debo Samuel. However, of those four, A.J. Brown was the only one not to get paid by the team that drafted him. Of course, he was traded to the Eagles earlier this offseason before signing his $71.5 million deal. Now, Brown took to Twitter to point this out, posting, quote, Basically, all four of us got the same contract, 
and I'm the only one that got traded. Yeah, keep believing it was me. Anyway, go birds, hashtag carry on, end quote. Buy or sell that the Tennessee Titans made a mistake by not paying A.J. Brown. Yeah, this is a good one. Um, I'm going to give it a buy here, D-Cell. Buy. Now, Carrington, who was here yesterday, seemed to be handling buy or sell as if he had a salary cap, as if he had a budget. Yeah, I think that would be a bad idea for Bill. Good idea for Carrington, not right. a great idea for Bill. But along those lines... This is a provisional buy, like, for a dollar or two. I'm not spending big bucks on this buy because I think where the Titans might win here is fast forward a couple of years and all of these contracts. I believe now it's seven receivers this offseason that have gotten deals that average 24 mil or more, and we only had one of those ever before this winter. Now we have seven more for eight total down the road, some of those deals might not look great. So I want to leave the slight door ajar to the Titans for not getting into a big money deal for A.J. Brown. When, oh, by the way, a lot of these guys got new deals. Like Tyreek Hill, like you can get wide receivers. So I think I want to let the Titans have this win to spend their money elsewhere. All right, let's keep that wide receiver conversation going here. Pittsburgh's Chase Claypool, is, who is heading into his third year in the NFL, has some big-time expectations for his teammate and rookie wide receiver, George Pickens, saying, quote, I think he's going to be the best rookie wide receiver in the NFL, end quote. Now, Pickens was a second-round pick out of Georgia. Buy or sell George Pickens being the best rookie wide receiver in this draft class, which had six wide receivers taken in the first round. Budget be damned. Let's buy this one too, DC. Bye. He's definitely going to be the best value in this draft because of that second-round pick, because of the ACL. But from doing those world-famous draft capsules that you hear on here on CBS Sports Radio in April, I remember reading more than one breakdown that Pickens might have been, could have been, should have been the first receiver off the board if he was healthy. And we've kind of figured out ACLs now. We've almost kind of figured out Achilles as well. But an ACL is not a death sentence. He should be fine. Now, his issue might be the quarterback throwing to him. But I think just as a wide receiver, it's definitely possible that he becomes the number one guy from this group. All right, let's get to some NBA here. Now, for the second time in a week, the NBA is launching a tampering investigation. First, it was into the Philadelphia 76ers and their signing of P.J. Tucker and Daniel House because of a supposed handshake deal mm. with James Harden agreeing to take a significant pay cut. Yesterday, the NBA launched an investigation into the Knicks because of their free agent signing of Jalen Brunson. Buy or sell that the NBA needs to end tampering investigations? Oh, buy. Buy. I, I thought maybe you would end with needs to stop tampering like the problem with tampering but you don't want them to investigate them anymore well i guess my biggest issue with that is how can you how can you stop tampering correct you can't and that is this is the nba's version of the ncaa telling you a team didn't win games or national titles because they used they had any kind of infraction like forget banners come down forget this those are all losses not wins you can't erase our memory like men in black And you can't stop this. It's not necessarily always wrong. And in this particular situation, 
I think the Harden one has a little more weight to it. And I think I'm being objective here. It's not because I don't like James Harden. But I would be more interested to know if the Sixers manipulated the cap to get all of these guys on board right now, more so than Jalen Brunson wanted to be a Nick. And they and he knew what it, and they knew what it would take, and it got done pretty quickly. Like that bothers me less than the Sixers redistributing money, promising things they can't to Harden so they could have him and PG Tucker and Daniel House. All right, let's get to some college basketball. Yes, I said college basketball. Why here. not? It's been over five years since Rick Pitino last coached at Louisville. However, new allegations have been issued against Patino and the school because of a new book released by a former Adidas employee. Merle Code is alleging in his new book that Patino was compliant in a bribery scheme to recruit a five-star player, Brian Bowen. Buy or sell these new allegations are a bad look for Patino's current school, Iona. Oh, I'll buy that. Buy. And I, and I think I can take you kind of in, not inside this, but yesterday I sat in these very studios in a Fordham University polo. I went to Fordham. I still call their football and basketball games. And at the same time that Rick Pitino was available, Fordham needed a new basketball coach. And there were people around the program, donors and whatnot, that wanted Fordham to hire Rick Pitino. They wanted the Rams to be the place where Patino got his, I don't know, 19th chance to be a good coach and human. And I don't I don't think Fordham ever itself actually ever seriously entertained the possibility, but there were people saying he should be the coach or they should try to make him the coach. And I understand what he can do in a basketball court with basketball players, but no thank you for this very reason. We don't know the full Patino story across the board. And in multiple ways, he appears to be a bad dude. And here's Iona, who went all in, and they've gotten better recruits. They won more games. They almost made the tournament last year. They've got better competition. They're in tournaments now, bigger ones than they ever would have been because he's their head coach. But this is the problem. These things will keep coming up. The NCAA will start sniffing around again. And you may have issues, suspensions, whatever, for things you get no sympathy for it, but it's reality where this may end up backfiring to a certain extent. All right, let's finish up with some baseball here. Last question. This last one, I did it just for you. Thank you. Put a smile on your face. Thank Happy you. Jacob DeGrom Day, Bogish. Here we go. The Mets ace will make his season debut today against the Nationals. DeGrom, of course, was sidelined this season because of a stress fracture in his throwing shoulder. Buy or sell a healthy Jacob DeGrom for the Mets? will be a better trade made by today's deadline by any team. I have to sell that. Sell. The possibility is there. There's no doubt about it. If it's just simply a player who wasn't on my roster before today is now and then contributes, he should be. Because unless we're talking about Juan Soto going to the Padres and hitting 600 with infinity home runs between now and and the end of October, there's nobody capable of being better at his job than Jacob DeGrom is. But you just can't count on it. Doesn't it Doesn't it have to matter to what team, assuming Soto gets traded today, what team he gets traded to? I mean, I, I guess it does. But I still think that it's almost like the MVP debate. 
debate between Judge and Otani and whatever, and first place and last place. Wherever Soto goes, whether it's the first place, you know, the first place Yankees, the looming Padres, or even a team on the, you know, pick a random team on the periphery of a, the wild card chase, if he goes there and rakes, then it is what it is. Now the rest of the guys may suck. The pitchers might can't get outs. Closer blows a save. The other guys don't hit. So all he's doing is hitting solo homers and getting left on base after a double or a walk. Like he, so yes, he's the only other guy, but. I don't think context matters that much because like with Otani and Judge, and by the way, pre-whatever, like I can't stand this conversation already and it's only August and we've got until December until we know about who wins this thing. Yankees first place, Angels disappointment. If you think Shohei Otani gets the Angels 12 more wins than they should have and Judge only gets the Yankees 10 more wins than they should have, then Otani's more valuable, even though the rest of the Angels suck. It's not his fault that they suck or that they're hurt. Just like it wouldn't be Soto's fault if he went to a team that wasn't tip-top in the NL, crushed it, but got let down by the other 25 guys. That's not a, that's not held against him. All right, that's buy or sell. Some D-sell, I think, an olive branch at the end, getting me geeked up about the Grom Day. 705 first pitch by a national. Whether or not Juan Soto is in their lineup remains to be seen. Some baseball moves already this morning. Deadlines at 6 Eastern. That stuff. Everything else going around in the sports world right now. Your update. Here's Erica Herskowitz. You're listening to the Writer Than You podcast. Another thing I love about this show. It's just two hours. After my very slow, deliberate, enjoyable morning. Come in here, hang out with my good friend D-Cell for a couple hours before the show, then during the show, and then we go have lunch together. He goes home, I go home. We'll talk all afternoon about tomorrow's show. We do it all again tomorrow. Andrew Bogish in for Bill Ryder on this Tuesday. I'm here tomorrow. I'm here Thursday as well with Bill on vacation all week. Carrington Harrison had the show yesterday. He's got it again on Friday to close out your week. What makes AutoZone America's number one battery destination? Well, they offer free battery testing and charging and reliable replacement batteries, and they've always got your battery solution. Get in the zone, AutoZone. So, here we are. It's 11.46 a.m. Eastern. The baseball trade deadline is six hours away, and it appears that the Juan Soto Domino one of the most significant trade dominoes in recent memory in any sport, not just baseball, is about to fall. And it's going to fall from Washington all the way across the country to the San Diego Padres. Multiple outlets now reporting. Now, one of them is Bob Nightingale, USA Today, who has become kind of the patron saint among baseball fans and snooty baseball tweeters and whatever they like to assume what that Bob's going to get things wrong. That if Bob's a little bit of a mush, that if he says this, something else is going to happen. But there's now been support. J.P. Morosi, MLB.com, MLB Network, he is saying the same thing, that we are basically at the goal line of a Padres-Nationals Juan Soto trade. Now, Joel Sherman, New York Post, chimes in, that this is happening now, not at the actual deadline that the Nats are giving up on the remaining six hours that somebody else might be crazy and give them more for Soto because there are so many people coming from San Diego to Washington 
for Soto, and we believe Josh Bell as well. So many people, so many prospects, so much medical information to go through to get this deal all the way done that they have to do it now so it can be completed by the end of the day and they wouldn't have time to go through a similar deal or this deal if they waited closer to the deadline. So somewhere within early Jim Rome's show, you may get this officially that Juan Soto's going from Washington to San Diego and there's no downplaying the significance of this trade. The NBA is tied in knots wondering what the Nets are going to do with Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant is on the short list when you factor in age and resume and future production. There's been very few players like Kevin Durant trade in the NBA, especially with multiple years of a contract left as well. But he's nothing compared to Juan Soto, who at 23, he's 23 years old. And Matt Hunter mentioned this way back in hour number one. There's about nine different ways to put that into perspective. One I saw last night, well, two actually, Juan Soto at 23, the Nationals' current number one prospect, a guy in the, in the minors, is older than Juan Soto. And I believe it was 24 of the top 100, so roughly a quarter of the top 100 prospects in baseball right now at MLB.com, older than Juan Soto. And he's already been in the majors for multiple years, won an MVP, won a batting title. In this world of three true outcomes, he's a unicorn that he walks more than he strikes out. There, I had a friend over the weekend tell me why he didn't want the Mets to trade for Juan Soto. I almost had to stop being friends with him. I just, I didn't know how to respond to that. I don't, I, I can't imagine. I would give the Nationals basically anything. Anything that I could legally trade from Juan Soto, I would give to Washington. I can't imagine the Padres will get to a point where they ever, for a nanosecond, regret this. And I can't believe that the St. Louis Cardinals, as Matt Snyder mentioned, were like, huh, I don't know. I don't think I could give you Dylan Carlson and Nolan Gorman and somebody else in the minors. I would trade Dylan Carlson and his family to the Nationals to get Juan Soto. Now, I don't know how San Diego will pay Juan Soto and Fernando Tatis Jr., They are not necessarily a young team. So at some point, they've got to reshuffle some kind of deck in the rotation and whatnot. But they also have A.J. Preller, who's the most aggressive, one of the most successful front office guys in baseball right now. And it sounds like, and this is now where the conversation is going to shift to, The aforementioned John Morosi says it's Juan Soto and it's Josh Bell from Washington to San Diego. C.J. Abrams, young shortstop. Robert Hassel, a young outfielder. Now, he is technically the number one prospect in the Padre organization. I believe he's number 21 on the same MLB pipeline list. However... The caveat to that is C.J. Abrams, 
Mackenzie Gore, who's not in this deal, by the way, but there are some guys who are off, and I don't know the specific reasons or the rules for it, but they have graduated from prospect ranking lists because they've been in the majors, I think. That's the simple rationale for it. So Abrams is better than Hassel. So to say that the Padres are giving up only the number 21 prospect in the game for Juan Soto is not necessarily fair because Abrams, who's been in the majors this year, partly because of Fernando Tatis's injury, should be on that list and should be near the top of it. So he's the headliner. There's some other, and then Hassel, and then some other guys. That doesn't seem like a lot. That seems like a steal for the Padres when it's Soto and Bell. I thought for sure that this deal had to begin with Gore, a lefty pitcher, who was at one point the number one prospect in baseball, but has been basically a reliever, part-time starter for them this year. I thought this deal had to have him and Abrams and Hassel and others just for Soto. But there's no Gore, only Abrams for Soto and Bell. And this is where I think you can get angry at the guy who's running or the woman who's running your team right now who is in on Juan Soto and didn't get Juan Soto. Obviously, there is subjectivity in all of these deals. The Padres, the Nats, they've got their lists. Washington may have just liked San Diego's guys better. But that's a beatable package by other teams. And the Cardinals and Padres could see each other in the postseason. And if Juan Soto outplays Dylan Carlson in that head-to-head, and he's most assuredly going to play outplay Dylan Carlson for their lives, and that kept the Cardinals from getting Juan Soto, then shame on St. Louis. And I don't know what the Dodgers offered. I don't know what the Yankees, the Mets, anybody else really put on paper to give to San Diego, and I am not by any way, shape, or form an expert on minor leaguers, but everything that we've all read in the last two weeks since we knew that Juan Soto was available, this doesn't seem like that much for Juan Soto, who is a 23-year-old, certifiable, undeniable future Hall of Famer. That is his trajectory. It would be a disappointment 15 years from now if his career ends and he is not locked into Cooperstown. That guy is a generational player. And A, the Nats just gave him up. And B, the Padres just got him. And at some point, they get Fernando Tatis Jr. back in that lineup around... Soto and Machado, and now haters closing. They're not catching the Dodgers now, but October just got that much more interesting. We'll break down all the deadline deals tomorrow when we're back with you on a Wednesday edition of Rider Than You. For now, have a great Tuesday. Thanks to D-Cell. I'm Bogish. We'll see you tomorrow on CBS Sports Radio. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 